and welcome to Feed and Flourish, the bite-sized podcast series from the Closters Forum with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about ways in which we can transform our food systems in order to positively preserve our planet. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. My name is Isabella Tree. I'm co-owner with my husband, Charlie Burrell, of Nepestate in West Sussex, which is uh, the largest rewilding project in lowland Britain. And I'm also the author of a book called Wilding, which tells the story of how we, how we made this leap into, into rewilding. So yes, you are. You are the renowned rewilding queen, known far and wide for your books and your project at Net Farm. But for those who may not know, could you tell us what is rewilding? Rewilding is really about trying to get natural processes back into the landscape. It's it's about giving nature its head, allowing nature to start performing again. So it, it's very different from the conventional way of looking at nature conservation, uh, which is all all about kind of targets. It's about preserving for certain species or even preserving certain habitats. So that involves a lot of control, a lot of management, trying to kind of lock down a landscape into a sort of uh, stasis, really, into into a way that's going to benefit whatever species or habitat you're targeting. With rewilding, it's much freer. It's about um, introducing some drivers into a system. So they could be free roaming animals, uh, water restoration, uh, or both. And then after allowing them to kind of kickstart that process, almost like pulling a glider back into the sky so it can fly again, then you sit back on your hands as human beings, as managers, and you really let nature perform. So it's, it's really about how how to get nature back in the driving seat and how to get us out of the driving seat and to trust nature to do its thing. For this podcast, we're focusing, of course, on biodiversity. What are the benefits where biodiversity is concerned of this approach? Well, they, I mean, they've been absolutely enormous as far as we're concerned at NEP. I mean, we were we are three and a half thousand acres um, of uh, very depleted agricultural land. We were dairy and arable farming, intensive farming when we took over in the 1980s, my husband and I. Uh, we're in one of the busiest, most crowded areas of southeast England underneath the Gatwick stacking system. Um, and this was land that really nobody would have thought would have been promising for wildlife. And yet now, 15, 20 years into rewilding, we are now one of the most significant areas for nature in Britain. We've got some of the most endangered species um, that that the UK has, like turtle doves and nightingales and purple emperor butterflies. I mean, dozens of species that are, are red data listed because they're so rare. So I think what rewilding demonstrates is how even on very, very depleted land, if you put the right drivers in place, suddenly miracles begin to happen. Biodiversity bounces back. And apart from introducing our free roaming herbivores, um, we've introduced old English longhorn cattle, Tamworth pigs, uh, red deer, fallow deer and Exmoor ponies. They're allowed free range of the, of the whole area 
disturbing the land, their dung, their urine, that has a huge impact on soil restoration. Um, the way they, they browse and graze in different ways stimulates vegetation, creates new habitats. And then suddenly you find life just piling in. We haven't introduced anything else. It's just everything has found us from dung beetles to lesser spotted woodpeckers to peregrine falcons nesting in a tree. You know, the, the, the miracles keep on coming. It's, it's astonishing what can happen. Nature can bounce back if you let it. It really is extraordinary hearing you describe it. It's like a scene from a children's picture book. Honestly, the imagination running wild. But you are, of course, an anomaly. Most people farm conventionally. What is wrong, if anything, with conventional farming where biodiversity is concerned? Well, obviously, we are um, we move from conventional farming into um, a nature restoration project. So we're we're not suggesting that NEP or even that rewilding is an alternative to food production. We're about producing other um, ecosystem services, they're called in very sort of civil servants, jargonese, um, kind of public goods like soil restoration, carbon sequestration, water fil- uh, filtration, um, water purification, flood mitigation, air purification, a place for human health and enjoyment and mental health. I mean, those are all the things that we are now providing through this nature restoration project. But I think that really goes hand in hand with looking at um, ways of farming on on other areas of land, land that is more suited to farming than ours. We're on very, very heavy clay, so we are not suited to modern intensive farming. But we have to move on from all our, our conventional farming into regenerative farming. And that means not ploughing. That means using cover crops in order to protect your soil and to provide um, a vegetative mulch eventually for the soil to take up those nutrients again. Um, Rotating your crops imaginatively and unpredictably so that they keep ahead of pests and also using livestock in that rotation like we used to do, very much like um, farming 70 or 80 years ago, except without the plough and with cover crops. Gabe Brown is, is, is just one of the many, many farmers across the world now doing regenerative farming and leading this field. And I think this is the way we are going to go. We know that our topsoils are disappearing at a rate of knots. Um, some scientists talk about having 100 harvests left across the planet before all our topsoil in our agri- agricultural lands has gone. There's nothing left for us to plant in. So we have to look at ways of working more closely with nature Um, in the ways that we farm. And that's perfectly doable. We know that regenerative farming um, can produce just as much, if not more food, um, with no inputs, no carbon costs um, um, compared to conventional farming. So we've just been going down the wrong track for a long time. And we have to retrace our steps and think again and look to a regenerative future. But I think rewilding plays into this idea of regenerative farming, Um, even in our big arable belts, even if they are all turned into regenerative farming, we still need to have areas where you can have greater biodiversity. Regenerative farming will support much more biodiversity than conventional farming, but it won't provide fantastic areas for for lynx, for wild boar, for, for pine martins, for, for the whole plethora of wildlife that's out there. 
Um, and this is important, not just for um, for our, our own enjoyment, but it also underpins all the the systems that that um, that sustain life on Earth, including our own. Um, E.O. Wilson, the wonderful American biologist, says that if we want to preserve biodiversity and we want to uh, conserve the systems that support life, including our own, we have to dedicate 50% of the land mass on Earth, half Earth, to nature. And I think that's what rewilding can provide. Do you imagine, do you really imagine it can have a wider future? It's hard when there's very little financial incentive, isn't there? I think that's true. I, I think for us, um, farming was failing. We we tried it for 17 years on our very heavy clay and it, it, it we never turned a profit, even with subsidies. So there is certain um, land, marginal land like ours, that farming really does not work on. But we were enabled to do this restoration project by agri-environment funding, so uh, funding that came originally from Europe. Um, I think governments have to think, and they are beginning to think about how to look at land management in a different way and how to reward land managers for doing these services for the public good, like soil restoration and carbon sequestration. So I'm hoping that there will be payments for this this kind of approach um, increasingly in the future. And hand in hand with that, I think also uh, what the policymakers are beginning to look at more closely is um, the polluter pays principle. So you've got the carrot on the one hand, which is the sort of the subsidies or the, the payments for for services to the public, but you've also got the carrot the stick. In, in the form of um, the polluter pays principle, which just has not been levelled evenly at farmers in the past because, um, you know, we've seen such heavy use of chemicals and soil degradation. Um, why should us, the consumer, pay for higher water bills because the water companies are having to pay for the cost of taking nitrates and, and soil particles out of our water? That cost should be factored in at source where the pollution actually happens, which is where the farmer is putting on um, chemicals and ploughing the soil. I mean, that's not to say, I mean, it, it's it's easy to point the finger, I think, at farmers, but really farmers have just been responding to a very skewed subsidy system, which has been incentivizing them to behave this way. They've been responding in a way that was completely what was intended when these common agricultural policy subsidies were put in place. So the system has to change. And, and I think it is beginning to. So there is change. There's change in the air. There's change in reactions. I mean, I've heard you speak about the initial reaction to what you were doing. And I think people were amazed, appalled, astounded, all in equal measure. But how much has that changed? Are people coming round, do you think? Yes, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. In the early days, we did have some some very sort of distressed and anxious letters um, coming through the door and people writing to our local MP and writing to the local press. And uh, it was very, very difficult. I think it was sort of in a way understandable because you have people who are looking onto a landscape that has been very neat and tidy. It's It's kind of in our 
our sort of aesthetic DNA, how we think our countryside should look. And suddenly, if all that neatness is thrown to the winds and it all becomes um, wall-to-wall ragwort and creeping thistle and scrub and brambles and bracken, people wonder what on earth you're doing and they're understandably horrified. But I think after 15 years, um, that the landscape has sort of settled down a bit. It looks very, very different from any other um, sort of British landscape we're used to. It looks more like the African bush um, or the outback in Australia. It's it's scrubby, dense, thorny, thorny scrub with open grazing areas. You've got new trees coming up in those thorns. You've got grazing animals weaving through it. It looks very wild and very different. But I think you know, the, the, the fear of change has kind of happened. The change has happened. And with it have come these remarkable things so that you can now go out there now and listen to nightingales. We heard our first nightingale yesterday, the earliest it's ever been recorded here at NEP. And I think people have begun to appreciate that there was method in our madness and that now we're hearing such incredible things. You can walk out there and hear the dawn chorus at this time of year and the, the bird song is so loud, you can just feel it vibrating in your lungs and your stomach. It's completely different to anywhere else in the UK that I know. And so I think that has really changed people's perceptions a great deal. Um, they've become more relaxed about how different it looks because, because of, of this wonderful effect, this feeling of life that issues from it. But I think it's also true to say that in the last year or so, the whole eco-anxiety, the, the anxiety about climate change and, and shifting weather patterns and biodiversity collapses has really begun to feed into the public imagination. And I think people are beginning to think much more creatively about how we should be managing our landscapes and are opening up to new ideas in a way that they never did before. So I think literally in the last couple of years, we're seeing landowners, farmers, um, policymakers, conservation NGOs, as well as the public, looking at NEP as, as a model of, of how to think outside the box, how to do things radically differently. And that willingness is here in a way that, that I think just literally wasn't here six or 10 years ago. And what do you think? Can you see that willingness extend even into urban areas uh, in the near or longer term future or anytime soon? Absolutely. I mean, we, we have emails by the dozen um, every week uh, asking, you know, how do I rewild my garden, my window box? You know, what can I do to the local churchyard or the roadside verges? We all of us can play a part in this. And the more that we do and the more... Um, particularly that we can connect with other areas for nature, um, then the more functioning those ecosystems become. I've got a friend um, in Bristol who has a garden and he's a wildlife film producer and a film, uh, film cameraman rather. And he has talked to his neighbours so that he's persuaded them to cut hedgehole holes in their fences. And one of them has a beetle bank, one of them has a pond, another has a bit of scrubby bramble. So between all those back gardens in this street in Bristol, they've got dozens of different habitats that are all connected together. That's now a wildlife corridor. 
if that can connect with an embankment, a railway embankment or a canal, that will feed out into the greater landscape. And also it will feed back into the city. It could feed into public spaces, into parks and gardens. And so then you've got real wildlife coming back into your into your cities. Perhaps we could have white storks in our cities. Perhaps we could have um, hedgehogs and pine martins instead of just the odd feral fox or feral pigeons. You know, we could have much more exciting wildlife in our own backyards again. Goodness me, it really all does sound a bit too good to be true. I think especially now in quarantine isolation time, the idea of coming out of it and this being something on the horizon. Thank you so much indeed for talking to us. Thank you. No, a great pleasure, Hannah. Thanks very much. <laughs> 